You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Adam. I'm Frankie. And we're back again with another excellent adventure from Agatha Christie's Poirot. Yep, Poirot and Hastings' excellent adventure. (laughs) (laughs) Four and twenty. It's all about the food this time. Four and twenty blackbirds. Yeah, I I hope you're hungry. We'll discuss the food in this one. You were giving me the pun eyes then. I thought that was going to lead to us. I hope you're hungry. I was like, what is this going to be? For adventure. (laughs) For crumble. (laughs) Yeah, very important. (laughs) Very important. But before we get into this week's story, which is 4 and 20 Blackbirds, we've had a very lovely email that I wanted to share from Lauren. And the subject line is excellent content. Now, if you're going to send an email, that's exactly the kind of subject line I appreciate. Sure, it's not like excellent content. Two, two word description of her state of mind. Well, it could be. Either way, <laughs> she didn't put a co- not to criticize her grammar, but she didn't put a comma. So I'm going to go ahead and say excellent content <laughs> exclamation mark. Uh, so yeah, if, basically just to say, if you're going to send us an email, which you absolutely should, uh, bonjour at laboursofhercule.com. Please include a compliment in the subject line because I will I will open that email <laughs> quicker. Otherwise, <laughs> that's straight to spam. That's a souchenay. Exactly. That. <laughs> so Lauren says bonjour mes amis. Okay. I I was going to wait until a few more eps in before emailing, but couldn't wait. Just a quick note to say thank you so much for doing this pod. It's marvellous to listen to like-minded people. People with a love of Poirot, for Art Deco, for Suchet, podcast heaven. Oh, so, what a lovely email. That's nice, isn't it? Thanks, Laura. I mean, oh, you haven't finished it yet. It gets better. Oh, I, I know. I mean, Hold your horses. Uh, I'd better get a fan. <laughs> exactly. My goodness. <laughs> Our egos are getting out of control. Uh, I've listened to episode two just there and was dying laughing at the visions of Mrs. Plenderleaf eating the house. <laughs> We got a little carried away. Very David Lynch, didn't it? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the way you both escalate your humour is hilarious and your chemistry really shines through. So that's very nice. One thing I adored about Murder in the Muse was when Laventon says about his dead fiance having anything troubling her. No, not a thing. We were engaged to be married. <laughs> the incredulity. <laughs> so true. And of course, Poirot showing off his sexy golfing skills. Mm. So very much looking forward to the next episode. And P.S. Can we please have La Sick Burn of the Week every week, forever, ad infinium? I think that's a done deal, what do you think? I think that is, yeah, we have to. Especially in this one, there's there's a couple of zingers that I think <laughs> could qualify for La Sick Burn. Should we get into this episode? Yeah, before we do, though, quickly, we ran a competition last week, mm-hmm. uh, which was to retweet and follow our Twitter account, which is at... Labour's Hercule on Twitter. Yep, convincing. And those who did so were in the running for a lovely small Poirot book. We. And um, it was a graphic novel of Murder on the Orient Express, right? That's right, yeah. And uh, who was our lucky winner? Sarah was our winner. So congratulations, Sarah. Those books are winging their way to you as we speak. I posted them yesterday. So by the time this goes out, you probably finished them both by now, read them both. Those books are mincing their way towards you. (laughs) (laughs) At great speed. I should put a pound coin in there as well to ensure the correct mint. (laughs) I think we should offer a pound coin as a prize. um... Oh, the pound coin? Well, they'll never know. It might be. (laughs) They might know. It's been in circulation. I don't want to know how they'll know. (laughs) I know. Imagine if you've had David Suchet's pound coin and spent it do you think he's put it back into circulation <laughs> probably I mean what else would you do? he wouldn't frame it would he well, he might oh I think he would mm, he, you know he might have taken it to an arcade and put it in a fruit machine you know a different kind of slot <laughs> <laughs> jackpot for those of you who are competition uh, friendly we currently have another competition running it's running until the 17th of August so this episode should be out over the weekend uh, but by the 15th of August so if you're listening to it get your skates on go over to our Twitter page which is twitter.com forward slash labors all you need to do is follow us and then like and retweet the post and you could win 
Oh my goodness, you describe it. I can't even describe this thing. A, a sick puzzle. I think that's the. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell I did a degree in English literature? <laughs> a fully sick puzzle. It's an Agatha Christie puzzle. It's a thousand pieces, and it's yeah, it is a thing of beauty. I have to say, so it's a good prize. You're extraordinarily generous. Yeah, has been said. Yeah, I, yeah, it, it was sent to me, and I thought our listeners would enjoy it a lot more than than I would, and they're so deserving to put up with listening to my voice. It's the least I could do. I agree. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> what do I have to give you as payment? <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> your dining table's probably just not big enough for a thousand piece puzzle. How dare you <laughs> assume that my dining table can handle it? It's a two thousand piece <laughs> table. That, that isn't that the unit of measure they use on the IKEA website? <laughs> How many pieces yeah. it can accommodate? No, I am actually moving house soon so it's quite helpful to, to also give off some of my beloved things i haven't actually i haven't even opened the puzzle so it doesn't don't think it's not like i'm giving everyone my scraps <laughs> so basically you're just clearing house yep basically right okay so the following week's prize will probably be you know all of frankie's cardboard recycling or... <laughs> if anyone would like a bag of my old clothes <laughs> follow and retweet <laughs> <laughs> hey there's some good stuff in there <laughs> shall we get onto the mystery let's do it So Hastings is currently obsessed with the cricket scores that are going on. He, mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what's going on. He's always got the cricket on the radio or he's got the newspaper out in front of him. So cricket, cricket, cricket is Hastings' little thing this time. He doesn't like cricket. He loves it. The song, right? I don't like cricket. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm into more modern music. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I'm known for it. Yeah. <laughs> you love new things. English enigma. I know not of any other game where even the players are unsure of the rules. Aussies are one up already. You can bet the Don will be looking for three figures at the hallowed ground. Hastings, I have no time for this Don and his crusade at the hallowed ground. I have a dinner engagement with my dentist. Your dentist? Positively morbid. Miss Lemon's, <laughs> her eyebrows are getting a good workout. Because <laughs> she's rolling her eyes at Hastings. She's rolling her eyes at Poirot because Poirot's off for dinner with his dentist. Who he spent, even in the, actually he's in earlier episodes made a point of avoiding the dentist as much as I know, now he's besties with the dentist. But again, I think there is an ulterior... He kind of alludes that there's an ulterior motive there because he's trying to soften him up the dentist so maybe he's not so brutal on his incisors. They are perfection. (laughs) Yes, he is incising friendship. No. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite warm in my room. Give me a break. (laughs) But you're always trying to avoid him. Not at all. Of duty, he's quite charming. Besides, he likes to see the end product at work. And also, Miss Lemon is enjoying the radio, listening to Raffles. And I learned about Raffles through a, a podcast called Attaboy Clarence. Oh, yeah. A while ago. Yeah, I did a thing you talked about, about Raffles, Raffles on there. Yes, I did. Well, crikey. Yeah, so Miss um, Lemon's listening to Raffles. And uh, Jap. Mm-hmm. Tell us about Jap. What's he up to? Jap is looking into the future. He's basically CSI. Mm. <laughs> He's launching the CSI division what? of Scotland Yard. There's a lot of scientific detection going on in this... Attempted. Episode. I know, it's a little bit... <laughs> but um, more than more than any other, I mean, it's it's sort of... Um, I mean, there's the scene in the lab, the operatives, I don't know what we call them. Scientists. The lab guys. <laughs> yeah. The, the forensic men, or whatever they're called. They, 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 seem, they seem to be very present in this episode. Yeah. Like they're in the lab scene. They, they follow Jap around, and then they even play a part in the denouement, which is very strange. Yeah, very, very theatrical and dramatic. Mm. Well, we get to that, but there is yeah, there's a part where basically, well, I mean, we're skipping ahead slightly, but Jap is in the lab, mm. um, and he's telling Poirot that basically they're gonna they're dinosaurs now, and their method of detection is dying out, and they won't need them anymore because we've got forensics now, we've got science. He's a man of science, so. Yeah, and, and Poirot says... And you think there is nothing to save us? Not even all those little grey cells of yours. We'll all be extinct, Poirot. Dinosaurs. But that's not true, is it? We all know better than that. There's always room for the little grey cells. Mm-hmm. Under the microscope. I don't know what's wrong with me today. It's too hot. <laughs> <laughs> So to start the episode, it opens with an old man dying in his bed, who we later find out is Anthony Gascoigne is his name. And they telephone 
who we later find out again is his nephew, George Lorimer, to tell him that his uncle's died. And they say to him, are you going to tell his brother that he's died? And he says, oh, goodness, no, I'll do that. I'll do that later on in his own time. Because it seems that there's a rivalry between Anthony Gascoigne and his brother. There's very little I can do for him now, Mrs Hill. He's very weak. Oh, dear. Is there no hope? I'm afraid not. It's more a matter of hours rather than days now. Does Mr Anthony have any relatives? There's a brother, Henry, but... They haven't spoken in 20 years. No one else? Well, yes. There's Mr George, his nephew in London. I expect he'd want to know. So then anyway, as we said, Poirot is off for dinner with his dentist, Boningham. Boddington. <laughs> Boddington's. <laughs> Boningham. Boddington. Why can't I speak? Bodding, Bonington. Boddington. It's Boddington. <laughs> Bonington, um, have you ever been for dinner with your dentist? I mean, doesn't everyone? <laughs> you live in a small enough little village that that could happen, so it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> He's also the pub landlord. <laughs> and the barber. <laughs> <laughs> but at this restaurant, he's having a lovely chat with Bonington. And they're they're about to order that. It's a, in a very British restaurant, it's also worth noting, which Poirot famously not the biggest fan of of english cuisine but mm. he places his hands in the care of bonnington for the order don't you mean he places himself in bonnington's hands that too <laughs> <laughs> he places his hands in <laughs> however here are the, my hands however gets you the meal me. paid <laughs> oh, maybe i was just thinking about what i would like him to do for me <laughs> Um, so yeah and then they're chatting to the waitress who's taking the order and she tells Bonington and Poirot about the strange old man and something that's happened that's a little bit odd lately there's an old man and he looks he looks very much like the man who died at the beginning of the episode he's sat in the corner of the restaurant and he's tucking his dinner away he also looks like if you were to google eccentric artist mm -hmm. costume from smithies <laughs> it would be this dude he looks like dick van dyke dressed up as that old banker at the end of mary poppins <laughs> he really does but with a beret and with a more convincing accent <laughs> yes anyone i mean he doesn't speak so already that makes it a lot better yeah than that absolutely accent. poor dick oh you see old Mr. Gascoigne sitting on his own over there? I'd say he'd been eating here since the old Queen died. Henry Gascoigne, a painter of some sorts, I'm told. Well, he's at that table every Wednesday and Saturday evening, never misses. Except last week, he arrived on Monday. Gave me quite a turn. An interesting deviation from habit. I wonder what the reason was. Well, I reckon he must have forgot himself. You know, he can't bear suet puddings or blackberries, and I've never known him take thick soup. Yet last Monday, do you know what he ordered? Thick tomato soup, steak and kidney pudding, and washed it all down with a blackberry crumble. Won't you? And he was back again on Wednesday, as usual, his old self again. But So can I also just talk for a second about his meal that he chooses, which is uncharacteristic of Henry Gascoigne, who we, later, we now know is his name. Old Mr. Gascoigne, as she calls him. But he would never normally eat thick tomato soup, steak and kidney pudding and blackberry crumble. Now, I think that sounds like a pretty banging meal, but you are not a fan of that. No, I don't like tomatoes. Um, steak and kidney pudding, I'm not a fan of the pudding part. Suey crust and uh, blackberry crumble. I don't really eat fruit. Like I like apples and bananas, but only if they're cut up. Like you know, like I'm a child. Right. Okay. Well, it's like it will be cooked to death if it makes you feel any better. It won't be the blackberries as well. They have seeds in them, mm -hmm. so you eat them and then you get like a soft, like tarty taste and then all of a sudden there's a crunch i'm not a fan of okay. that it's like give me one texture or, or nothing okay good to know well i'll i'd eat all of that quite happily because i'm not a fussy little bitch <laughs> 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 and i eat everything um but it is uh yeah a pretty british meal overall and it was it's interesting now so we now know that if you were to order that meal in a restaurant people should be suspicious yeah if you right? ever hear me eating that meal on the podcast you'll know it's an imposter oh the crunch of these blackberries oh amazing <laughs> exclaiming <laughs> loudly hang on a minute let me just snort this thick tomato soup mm, the thicker the better 
So anyway, Molly, the waitress, brings that to their attention and Poirot's interest is piqued, probably because this guy looks so bloody weird. Hmm. <laughs> across from him Van Dyke. in his Smithies costume. Yeah, yeah he's, he's just a big fan of Le Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> you know, I find that extraordinarily interesting. What? That old man's deviation from habit. No, the change in diet, you mean? Mm. Well, doctor's orders, I'd say. It's common enough. I think not. Unless, of course, he thinks the old man would benefit from indigestion. <laughs> We then spin forward slightly uh, to the landlady of old Mr. Gascoigne, finding, when she arrives for work, old Mr. Gascoigne lying dead at the bottom of his stairs. Because she notices the milk bottles are piling up outside. She's concerned. She gathers a posse and they break the door down. (laughs) And they find him at the bottom of the stairs. But then we cut to Poirot has finally been forced into the dentist chair and Bonington tells him that, oh, you know that, that weird old artist looking dude that we saw in the restaurant who was ordering that weird meal he's dead <laughs> turns out he fell down the stairs <laughs> while Poirot's got his, a, mouth, a mouthful of his fingers and various implements um, it's always when you're when they have everything inside your mouth that dentists ask so you, I tell you these important <laughs> things about murders or ask questions about your holidays and stuff isn't it remember that old fellow we saw at Bishop's the other night the one that Molly remarked on about how he changed his diet uh, 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 try not to talk well, I'm afraid he's eaten his last blackberry crumble. Poor old chaps kicked the bucket. Seems when he got home that night, he fell down the stairs of his lodgings. So then Poirot decides to take a look into it for some reason. His interest's been piqued mm. enough that he thinks it's worth another look. Mm. So he grabs his main man, Hastings, and heads over the apartment. So that's the basic setup. There are two twin brothers, the very old men. One of them dies. At the very outset, or bad heart or something. Yeah, old man age. Gets us all. (laughs) And the second one, the second twin, old Mr. Gascoigne, is the one who uh, was at the restaurant and had the eating anomalies. He's now been found dead at the bottom of his stairs. And it's suspicious enough that Poirot wants to look into it, even though no one's asked him to. He's taken it upon himself to have a little look into it. In the book, in the short story... Mm The dentist remarks to Poirot when he's telling him that, oh, you remember that chap we saw in the restaurant the other night? Mm -hmm. He remarks that the reason that he ate such a hearty, heavy meal was that he'd had some bad news. Obviously, he's had some bad news about his health. So he was having a last blowout. So when his heart gave out, you know, that's why he was eating funny. But Poirot doesn't buy that at all. He's like... Nah. Oh, that's interesting that they didn't include that in the story. They just—it just seemed pretty random. That Poirot's like, "Nah, I'm gonna look into this." Mm, <laughs> yeah, it's weird food. But Poirot also makes an observation, doesn't he? He says that the mantle of life should fit like a well-tailored suit of clothes. Hmm. But it did not hang so well on that old man in the restaurant. He noticed something was up straight away. I saw Monsieur Gascoigne on the evening of his death. I was told that his behaviour had recently been. Uh... How do you say, uh, uncharacteristic? But more than that, the mantle of life should fit like a well-tailored suit of clothes. But he did not hang so well on that old man in the restaurant. You see, mademoiselle, I cannot accept that the fall of Monsieur Gascoigne was accidental. Because he looked like a child's drawing of an artist (laughs) basically (laughs) and that is quite suspicious when you think about it actually nowadays if you went to Shoreditch that would look totally normal I think everyone pretty much looks like that now yeah or if you're a banker in a 1964 Disney film (laughs) exactly a a banker come chimney sweep (laughs) (laughs) utterly convincing (laughs) well Poirot knows that something's wrong which should tell us that something's wrong. So if something's wrong, there needs to be a gallery of suspects. So Sure. Well, the first person of interest that we meet is Dulcie Lang, who was... So Henry Gascoigne was an artist and she was his muse. She was in all of his paintings. And we see already that Hastings is going to be in trouble in this one because <laughs> she's a hot redhead. It's quite partial to them. <laughs> So obviously, good lord, Hastings is rather <laughs> excited to meet Dorsey Lang. But she is pretty, she's a pretty cool customer. Mm. She isn't remotely phased by either of them. Kind of mm. thinks it's weird they're even looking into it because in her mind it's clearly an accident. He fell down the stairs. But she gives out quite a, a few interesting tidbits of information, I would say. She, she tells them that's how they find out that he had a brother, an almost twin-looking brother. There was a brother too. 
somewhere or other. Anthony. Yes, Anthony. But there'd been a falling out between them. He certainly never spoke of the man like a brother. Poirot's suspicious. Hastings obviously is all hot under the collar because she's a hot redhead. And, you know, when they leave the, the place, Poirot says... Ah, the Alban hair, mon ami. Always the Alban hair. No, I just find it pretty hard to believe, that's all. So Dorsey Lang also owns a couple of Henry Gascoigne's works of art. Now, Henry Gascoigne, he coveted his own art jealously, hardly ever sold it. So that means it's extraordinarily valuable whenever it does come to market. So Poirot deduces that maybe a motive for Dorsey Lang yes. killing Henry Gascoigne is that her paintings are now worth a sodden fortune. But as well, there is another uh, pawn in the game, Peter Makinson, who's Gascoigne's agent. He also owns some of Henry Gascoigne's works, doesn't he? Yes. They meet him at an art gallery and it is the most beautiful art deco gallery office. There's this really beautiful moment when they walk up the stairs talking, Poirot, Hastings and Makinson, and that staircase, goddamn. I know, it's just house porn yeah. over and over again in this series, isn't it? Very arousing. And the sta- the shot even of them going up the staircase is just, the, it did, they didn't need to do that, but they wanted to show it off and very glad that they did. They're pandering. Mm. Pat staircase porn, they know what they're doing. Ah, that is a picture by Monsieur Gascoigne, is it not? But not his usual model. No, that was painted years before he met Dulcie Lane. She is Charlotte Gascoigne, a rare beauty. His wife? No, Charlotte was married to Anthony Gascoigne, his brother. They find out from Megaton that he, the reason why as well, that Henry fell out with his brother all those years ago was because Anthony's wife was his original muse. And she is a, there is a big old naked portrait of her hanging in the the agent's office and the brother didn't like that they existed and Henry wanted to keep it safe. So he kept it, he gave it to the agent to hide. So now we know why the brothers don't really like each other. I remember TV in the 80s. Obviously, this is 89, right right at the end. Um, There was a certain time of day where you could get away with nudity Mm -hmm. on screen. Um, And... I remember, never forget... Watershed? The 9pm watershed came in when I was like quite young, but um, it wasn't really enforced that rigidly. When it came to nudity, sometimes you'd get nudity at like tea time. Mm. I, was at, I was at my nan's house once, and um, I had Channel 4 on in the morning, which was, you know, don't do that. It's a sinful, sinful place Ooh, to be. Risky. Um, and there was a French film called Paul and Michelle. I'll never forget it. And it was basically just a porno. And it was on about 10.30 in the morning. It was Brilliant. A very formative experience for me. But um, programmes like the, the the evening entertainment stuff on ITV especially, Minder was full of, you know, page three shots, shall we say. Mm. But um, it just reminded me of that time, that sort of wild west of TV in this episode because, I mean, it's... it's boobs. From a distance. But yeah, I mean, there are boobs in this episode, aren't there? Dulcie Lang. Dulcie Lang boobs. She put, she poses nude, isn't it? And I mean, you get a she great... She got her Dulcie Langs out. Yeah. <laughs> They're all lagging out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my favourite thing about that, the thing that I found quite surprising, actually, there's, there's a shot where Dulcie Lang is posing for an art class. They're all drawing her nude and Hastings and Poirot are stood at the top floor of a long drop basically looking down and Poirot's having a little look he's having a little peek he's watching what's going on but Hastings is such a gent that he won't look even and it's nice to see that because Hastings is a bit of a bit of a I'm trying to think of a way of not saying like horny bastard he falls in love every five minutes but he's still a gentleman isn't he to the letter like and that's his like military respectful yeah whereas Poirot I think is just like oh I mean we know that Poirot is it's art yeah it's art yeah. he's not Poirot's not a sexual person by any stretch of the imagination he's just observing and seeing what's going on but yeah Hastings will not bring himself to look and there's even a moment when they get down there that Hastings is very quick to say oh we, we didn't see anything <laughs> we were in the gallery <laughs> I wasn't looking <laughs> I didn't like, see your langs didn't ask as you have already seen for yourselves I have nothing to hide no no we were up in the gallery so that's uh, that's Dulcie Lang and uh, Peter Makinson. Yes. And uh, then we get on to the third person of interest. Yes. George Lorimer, who was the nephew of the two men who died. It's George who gets the phone call from Anthony's maid right at the beginning. Yes. What do you think of George Lorimer? So George Lorimer runs a... It's actually... They filmed it at the Hackney Empire Theatre and it's a music hall. So they go and see him... 
they go there to find him, don't they? And it's it's really, again, another example of this production having loads of details they didn't need to have in there. They've got showgirls, they've got comedians. It's all really hustle and bustle backstage. And it's really fun to see like Hastings is still being very respectful, not looking at the showgirls too much. But you can tell he's having a little side peek. And it's, yeah, it's really nice to see them and in such an alien environment, particularly for Poirot, who's not usually immersed in the world of glamour in that respect and fun so it was quite fun to get those shots in and the costumes and the set design and everything really really beautiful so i enjoyed that it really doesn't feel like a tv show at times it feels just like a like you're staring through a window yes and then it's you know to another time Mm. because it's it's so rich isn't it bang on about this every episode we can't not (laughs) it's so intrinsic to the to the show it's just yet more proof that it's uh, a real jewel. Absolutely. Monsieur George Lorimer? Uh, no, actually, I'm Harry Clark, George's assistant. He's not here tonight. Ah, can you tell me where I might find him this evening, monsieur? Well, I'm afraid not. He's out of town. In Brighton, attending to his uncle's funeral arrangements. In Brighton? Yes, is there something wrong? Uh, no, no. C'est difficile, monsieur. You see, we were led to believe that Henry Gascoigne would not be buried until next week and then here in London. Henry, you've got the wrong chappy. George was talking about his uncle Anthony. Died last week. Anthony? Yes, funerals tomorrow. So then they go to fi- they, they go to see George Lorimer and the, they're told by one of his assistants or whatever that he's actually in Brighton because he's t- attending to the funeral of his uncle. And Poirot and Hastings are surprised. They're like, oh, they're, they're burying him already? He just died. And they're like, no, no, not, not that uncle, the other one. He died a little while ago. So they're very surprised to hear this. The the elusive twin that they were hoping to speak to is actually dead. So Both brothers have died within the space of a few days basically very very interesting so they decide to head over to brighton to find george and see what's going on and they they just rock up at the funeral which <laughs> i always think is really funny when they do that in films like we just show up at someone's funeral it's very nice a great time to start speaking to people i suppose mm. emotions are raw <laughs> let me stop here <laughs> I know sorry to interrupt your eulogy they're still scraping the dirt onto his <laughs> onto his box but <laughs> tell us where you were <laughs> exactly but they do wait until the end and to their credit they wait until it's wrapped before they start their questioning which is respectful um, but they meet George he's very accommodating he invites them back to the house he doesn't know who they are at first Poirot pretends that he was friends with Anthony uh, Gascoigne and so that's how he gets in there he goes back to the house and they meet. Also, they, I forget her name completely. I should have written that down. The la, the woman who was his maid. Um, yeah, I don't know, but um, the she plays she plays uh, one of the sisters in Don't Look Now. Have you seen that? Oh yes. Mm, she plays the blind lady. Oh my god. Lady. Yeah. Oh, I remember god, I seeing love that film. As soon as I saw her at the opening scene, I was like, <laughs> 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 which? <laughs> yeah, perfect. Nursemaid and companion, I was cook and cleaner all those years. Then he goes, just like that. Not a thank you for all my trouble. Not a penny by way of remembrance. Not even a small legacy in the will for your services. There was no will. From here, we go to Jap. It's Jap's turn to become part of the story and with his scientific team of investigators. And um, one of the clues that he brings to light straight away is not just the time of death, but the contents of Henry Gascoigne's stomach. An examination of the contents of Gascoigne's stomach revealed that he had eaten a light supper two to three hours before his death. So they, obviously now that Jap is full forensic mode, they've gone into his stomach and they've seen that he had a light meal at the time of his death. A light meal. To be honest with you, I take a little bit of umbrage with this because one man's light meal is another man's feast. It's all subjective. There's no judgment here. I'm not going to... F- we're not going to food shame people on this podcast, but arguably soup and steak and kidney pudding and crumble is not that light of a meal, would you say? You think about that in stomach terms, they're going to be hauling out a bag of sludge. <laughs> Pips and all, from seeds and all from the blackberries. <laughs> and the suet all combined, yeah, that would make a, a hefty... Yeah, I mean, that's going to be a heavy thing. Yeah, medicine ball in there. <laughs> <laughs> kettlebell <laughs> stomach <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but they, they believe well 
Jap estimates the time of death was 9.30pm on Saturday the 16th of June. But this is largely because we find out there was a letter in Gascoigne's dressing gown that was posted that morning and arrived by the 9.30 delivery post in the evening. Because Royal Mail used to do that back then. They do evening deliveries of post. Can you imagine? What a world. The estimated time of death was at or around 9.30pm on Saturday, June the 16th. It's remarkable. Your forensic division is very precise, don't you? Uh, well, no. There was a letter in the old boy's dressing gown pocket. It was posted that morning in West One and arrived by the 9.30 delivery that evening. He must have gone down to collect it and fallen on his way back upstairs. I see. So um, 9.30pm would have meant that he would have died shortly after Poirot saw him in the restaurant. So uh, Poirot saw him eat... A great meal. A banging meal. A great... Yeah, it's a big old meal, isn't Mm. it? Um, But the pathologist says that in the stomach of Henry Gascoigne was a light meal. Also, Poirot asks a very interesting question. Where is teeth? Henry Gascoigne finished his meal with the blackbird, or rather the blackberry crumble. Now, the juice of the blackberry leaves a dark stain. And yet... The teeth of Henry Gascoigne were not discoloured. I wasn't aware that blackberries were that powerful a dyeing agent for teeth. <laughs> I have eaten some before and not looked like I've just, I don't know, gorged on a blue Sharpie. So I was quite surprised. Didn't you notice that everyone was looking at you like, yeah. I just assumed it was all my other hideous flaws. <laughs> I didn't realise it was my teeth. So good to I know. plucked my nose hair. Though, so. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess maybe, maybe Gascoigne, had, maybe he used really strong toothpaste. We don't know. Mm. But that is, yeah, that's a good point. I guess maybe back in these times, people's teeth were more porous and prone to staining. Maybe. Maybe, Maybe. he just swallowed the blackberry crumble without biting it. Like a gannet. (laughs) In the background, when Poirot's watching in the restaurant, he's just dislocating his jaw to insert a whole crumble. (laughs) He's just throwing it straight to the back of his throat. (laughs) It's quite, yeah, he's quite the popular man. (laughs) (laughs) It's me. (laughs) Oh, I think it's the heat. (laughs) That combined, the big meal, makes Poirot think that this is definitely a murder. Something's not right here. He's very suspicious. According to the pathologist, Henry Gascoigne died two hours after eating the light meal. I do not consider soup, followed by the steak and kidney pudding, to be the light meal. But suppose that meal was not dinner, but lunch. But the old boy was seen at the restaurant at 7.30. You saw him. So Poirot and Hastings uh, and Jap pretty much come up with the fact that um, the man in the restaurant was not Henry Gascoigne. It must have been someone dressed as Henry Gascoigne to throw whoever finds his body off the scent, you know, or to mess up the timings, basically, so that someone would have an alibi. But they deduce that the murderer would have needed to have disposed of his disguise after pretending to be Henry Gascoigne in the restaurant. So Poirot's spies a nearby public loo and goes in and finds Jim Branning from EastEnders <laughs> what a delightful discovery to find in any public toilet I'd be thrilled <laughs> uh, not just any Jim Branning either a very dapper Jim Branning because he's wearing <laughs> if you found clothes that were fantastic and wear at station wouldn't you put them away or would you just wear them all day, all night. Well, especially if I found them in a public toilet as well. <laughs> <laughs> not, not like in a, a fresh shopping bag that's just been purchased somewhere that someone happened to leave somewhere sanitary. A public toilet <laughs> in, in the 40s. Mm. <laughs> it was a time of life. In a men's public toilet <laughs> as well. Yeah, anyway, so um, mm. Poirot offers him some money, uh, extracts the clothing from him. Yes. And uh, it turns out that, yeah, those were the clothes that the Henry Gascoigne that Poirot saw in the restaurant was wearing that evening. Well, Waldo was just lying there, wasn't I? I wasn't going to throw him out and make a few bob with him down the lane. You have been diligent and honest, sir. I trust that this will compensate for the few bob you might have made. That is pretty much as far as we can go because the the answer to the mystery comes soon after that i mean that's 40 minutes of the program there are a lot of clues in this but they're all very important and quite not easy to follow but they make sense whereas they're not you'd have to think laterally on this one if you put it all together you can come up with what's happened it's not a psychological one by any stretch no it's 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 a chain of events once you've got it in your head then you can work out who and why yeah 
He did it. Um, do you want to run through the uh, the key moments that people will need? Sure. So the three big clues for this one. At around the six minute mark, Molly the waitress tells Poirot and Bonnington that Mr. old Mr. Gascoigne's eating habits are very out of character at the moment. And he's been in on different days. So that's the first one. Well, he's at that table every Wednesday and Saturday evening. Never misses. Except last week, he arrived on Monday. Gave me quite a turn. An interesting deviation from habit. I wonder what the reason was. Well, I reckon he must have forgot himself. You know, he can't bear suet puddings or blackberries. And I've never known him take thick soup. Yet last Monday, do you know what he ordered? Thick tomato soup, steak and kidney pudding and washed it all down with a blackberry crumble. And at 15.39, when Jap tells Poirot the estimated time of death was at 9.30pm on Saturday the 16th of June. The estimated time of death was at or around 9.30pm on Saturday, June the 16th. It's remarkable. Your forensic division is very precise, don't you? Uh, well, no. There was a letter in the old boy's dressing gown pocket. It was posted that morning in West One and arrived by the 9.30 delivery that evening. He must have gone down to collect it and fallen on his way back upstairs. I see. And the, the last one around the 40-minute mark, as we said, is the fact that the clothing has been disposed of in a, in a public toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Browning's wearing Also known as Jim Browning's wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> Imelda Marcos of the public convenience world. The wardrobe was just lying there, wasn't they? I wasn't going to throw them out and make a few bob with him down the lane. So we've gotten to the point where we we aren't going to go any further to give no spoilers. But I also do want to, in the spirit of our our new promise to give La Sick Burn of the Week, I want to go back a little bit mm-hmm. to a beautiful moment in the show when Poirot cooks for Hastings. Grab it, cooked in the style of Liège. Is it not the most adorable thing you've ever seen, Poirot? It really is. Yeah, his little face. He's so keen to make sure that he loves it. Mm-hmm. But there is nothing worse than when someone watch, gives you something and then watches you react to it. Is there anything worse? <laughs> the pressure that you feel when someone's like, I've made this for you and I'm going to stare at you while you consume it. That's why I hate Christmas. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> so, But Poirot makes Hastings rabbit cooked in the style of Liège. I see you say it better than me. <laughs> and Hastings tries to make a funny little joke. <laughs> rabbit In the style of Liège. I bet it's better than rabbit cooked in the style of Hastings. Yes, that is quite funny, Hastings. However, when you are grown up, you will find that food is not really the subject suitable for the humour. And there's also um, a Hastings tries to give a compliment while Poirot is looking at him with these wide eyes, like, do you like it? Are you enjoying it? And Hastings says, (laughs) is it good, Hastings? Please, do not be stinting with your praise. Oh, it's wonderful. Uh, tastes more, um, well, um, rabbity than any rabbit I've ever tasted. That is the juniper berries. Poirot's pleased with that one as well, isn't he? He's like, oh, good. <laughs> I think he's you know, looking for what he can get there. But you also have to um, talk about the cricket. Oh, my God, yeah. Uh, so Hastings obviously obsessed with cricket all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, Poirot's first viewpoint on cricket comes at about the four-minute mark. Mm-hmm. Cricket. The English enigma. I know not of any other game where even the players are unsure of the rules. I also really like Hastings when he visits the art gallery and is shown the painting. I think that's genius. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, all of this work is rather abstract, and I'd be exactly the same as Hastings if someone said... Man throwing a stone at a bird. Really? Which is which? Very relatable moment, very much like when you go to the Tate Modern, and they're like, this is art. You're like, oh, all right. I thought it was the fire escape. That's cool. <laughs> well, this was the loo. So what do you think of this episode, 4 and 20 Blackbirds? Um, I think it's, after Johnny Waverley, we're back to a more typical Agatha Christie. Agatha mm. Christery. <laughs> Christery, yeah. A Christery? It's all in the spelling of that one. Um, mm. But I, I enjoyed this one. It's one that, as you say, I think 
one of the great things about it is the clues are all there and you're shown everything. Nothing's kept away from you in this one. So you can solve this one yourself without mm. having the psychological expertise of Poirot necessarily or even, you know, the interaction with the characters that he has. So I like that. I think that's really fun. And I don't know, it's obvious when you first see Gascoigne that something's not right from the beginning. So maybe that kind of makes it a little bit too easy in that respect. I don't know. But I enjoyed it. I thought it was really fun. And I like that you can really go on the journey with Poirot in this one. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I really agree with you. I, I think it's one of those episodes that, as you say, the, the clues are kind of simple. They're very, in, it's all in bold colours in this one, mm. which I like. There's no, there's no nuance. You don't have to guess at anything. You can work it out. If you yeah. sat there with a notepad and went through the whole episode, you, you could pause it at the 41 minute mark and say right can't be that person can't be that person must be that person yeah um and these facts back it up so yeah it's it's a good solid mystery i think johnny waverley is just it was just insultingly easy but um that's the low that's the there's not not to 10 that's at the low end naught. it's literally that the adventure of johnny waverley i think for me is the most redundant mystery yeah. of the entire series so it is the low yep. bar. But this one, I don't know, on a rating of 1 to 10? I like it because it's um, it's like you could give it to a child and they would feel like very triumphant by solving it. But they could solve it. So I would a say... Secret 7 could do this one, I think. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a Secret 7 mystery, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, you know, yeah. can't have been that person. So yeah, I'd give it... Yeah, six. I was thinking a six. Mm. Yeah, six in terms of mystery, in terms of you know, quality, as ever. Uh, yeah, ten tens plus. across the board. Yeah, tens across the board. It's a lush thing to look at, um, mm. especially with the, all the 1920s art galleries and. I thought you were going to say with all the naked women. Well, that too. <laughs> that does help. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> all those redheads. My goodness. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun one, and there are no moments in this one that there are in some when Poirot sees something we don't see, and you see him do like a little smirk or like, oh, okay, I understand now. And there's no bits where he's going, oh, Hastings, I've been an absolute fool. Well, there are kind of is, but you you get it with mm. him. You're there on the journey. So yeah, I agree. I think a six is a, it's a solid one, mm, this one. It's a good mystery. It's good fun. It's a good fun mystery. And great, great lines, great moments between Hastings and Poirot. And also, I forgot to mention as well, when you first see Hastings in this one, actually, no, that's not true. When the Hastings and Poirot go to the house, Hastings is wearing the most insane outfit. I love it so much. He's basically dressed like he's about to steer a ship. He's dressed like a sea captain, but then he's wearing like an old time newspaper reporter trilby with it. And it just, it's, I, the second I saw it, I like nearly applauded. I was like, this is, this is everything I want from Hastings. After the leather jacket last time, this was just the icing on top of the cake mm, for me. Yeah, he's a proper, he's bossing it in this one. He's not leaving that in any public toilets. No, that no outfit way. is staying. <laughs> We kind of came to the conclusion last time that sometimes the endings are worth discussing because, especially in the case mm. of this episode, there's lots that happens in the Dumont. It's quite fun. Mm. So it'd be a shame to leave it out. So what we thought we'd do is we will discuss the reveals on every episode. But um, after our closing music is out, if you want to stick around so we can talk about the reveal, then do so. If you'd rather go away and solve it for yourself, then leave at the end of the episode and come back to it when you have watched it so um so yes we will discuss it in a little while if you want to go away and solve it please do so we've given you everything uh look in the show notes for any relevant time codes and a little guide to what you should be looking out yeah. for thanks for joining us on another journey through horror the next episode is the third floor flat when it is set entirely in Poirot's apartment block so more curvy sexy buildings to come is there anything better than looking in other people's houses in a really non-creepy way <laughs> no there's not no maybe a little bit creepy <laughs> I don't know but with their permission sometimes that's why people like zoom calls isn't it is that why I see you looking at my desk uh, yeah I'm looking at that. I can see, a, see some good stuff back there I see that man trying to get out of your cupboard <laughs> but I really think I need to get some more padlocks <laughs> <laughs> anyway if you want to join us for our talk about the ending then uh, wait until the theme music plays us out and then join us again. If not, if you want to go away and solve it, then please do. And uh, thank you for joining us this time. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>
Yes, it's George Lorimer. Of course it bloody is. Who is the only one that benefits from that alibi yeah that was carefully set up and from the death really well yeah and from the death and but um yeah he was off in brighton apparently the next day wasn't he so um Mm -hmm. yeah so of course it was george Lorimer. plus of course he works in the theater so he's used to dressing up there he was with prosthetics on and costumes on pretending to be his uncle in the restaurant what do you think of the ending to this one you could tell the production team again were having a bit of fun with this one because the way they present the denouement is completely unnecessary (laughs) And bordering on unhinged. Like, I just love the idea that the police would go, like, Jap would go, okay, so how how are we going to get this one out? And Poirot's like, bear with me on this. I'm going to need a stage manager. Yeah. Um, can, can you just pack up all of your forensic gear in the van? Yeah, literally. Could you all come yeah. as well for no reason at all? Could you all just, everyone who works at Scotland Yard, just get in, the van. Get in your car and come to the... And there's like a young boy that's like, I just make the tea. He's like, whatever, in the van. Come on, we've got to do this. Grab a lab coat. Let's get this show on the road, people. Um, but you can tell they're actually kind of loving it too, because they get their little, mm-hmm. oh, this is their time to shine, their five minutes of fame when they're on the stage. So George Lorimer comes back to the theatre and the, the scene is set very literally mm. set he finds scotland yard on his <laughs> stage like, yeah guys i've got a show in 15 minutes. yeah what are you doing well, he, he's not got nothing because they are about to tell him exactly how he committed the murder of his uncle you see that saturday evening after he had pushed henry gascoigne to his death the assassin searched through the correspondence on his desk he retrieved this envelope which he had sent the day before. Now, what could be more innocent than an invitation to an art gallery, eh? However, he had one last artistic task to perform, but he was not a skilled craftsman. He changed the postmark from the 15th to the 16th and smudged the mark on the blotter to further conceal the forgery. He placed the envelope in your uncle's dressing gown pocket and then, disguised as the old man, he took his place at the bishop's chop house. And so it appeared that Henry Gascoigne had fallen to his death that Saturday evening, oh yes, but after the 9.30 post had been delivered. Whoever could do such a thing? Oh, well, at first I suspected his colleagues, but they all had the solid alibis. And then naturally I turned my attention towards his family. But Anthony was dead. It appeared that you were the only living relative, and of course you were. And where were you when your uncle was murdered, monsieur? Where was I? Well, I'd have been here, at the theatre, for the second performance. Of course. Ah, yes, but that would have been a Saturday evening, Mr Lorimer. Neither the staff nor the artists here can remember seeing you on that Saturday afternoon. (laughs) At which time, I would say, you are attending to some business, yes? Yes. The murder of your uncle. Like his face changes in that moment. He's like, oh. It's properly like one of those moments you go, Yeah, you get him. You get him. So good. Um, and I thought, yeah, I thought the the actual murder itself, the way he did it was very, it was obviously very clever. And the way that the, the first time that he was at the restaurant at the wrong day, it was a dress rehearsal and it all ties back into mm. the theatre. So I, It does. It ties back to the theatre. So basically what happened was Anthony Gascoigne had died. George Lorimer had been called and they said, it's only your other uncle left now. So he decided not to wait and to get rid of him as well. So instead of uh, Henry Gascoigne inheriting Anthony's money and then Henry dying at some point in the future and then George inheriting it, he decided to do away with Henry now and then he would just inherit everything at once without waiting. I mean, silly, really. Why don't you just hang on? Yeah. So basically he, um, he impersonated his uncle at the restaurant once, as we know, because Molly remarks on it, and then on the night of the murder. And that's how it happened. He ate a different meal. He ate a great big heavy meal. Whereas the real Mr. Gascoigne had eaten light that evening and gone to bed or or stayed at home. So Mr. George Lorimore had gone round there with his great big kettlebell stomach (laughs) and pushed his uncle downstairs. The weight of the kettlebell knocked him down the stairs. He swung his stomach (laughs) at his uncle took him out and if only he you know if it would have got away with it too if it wasn't for that pesky menu because if he'd ordered a light lunch they may never have figured it out you know literally mm. yeah that's another change that they made from the book which i didn't really quite understand in the story mm. he says oh you'll never be able to prove it you'll never be able to prove it and poirot says show us your teeth and they're stained with blackberry <sighs> yeah they didn't have that george lomer in the, in the tv show brushed his teeth on the reg 
So that part, <laughs> so that plan was foiled, perhaps. That part. He had new teeth installed. <laughs> but yeah, what, what I love about these, um, the the reveal thing is that he says, you know, you murdered your uncle. This is how you did it. George Lorimer gives the most pathetic escape attempt yeah. <laughs> I've ever seen. He takes two steps forward towards the edge of the stage and the lights go <laughs> on and he is frozen like a rabbit yeah. <laughs> of Liège. <laughs> yeah, the most rabbity rabbit you've ever seen <laughs> in that moment. Yeah, there, I mean, a bright light is quite stunning. Sure, it will stun mm. you, but come on, man. <laughs> He's literally halted frozen by the lights yeah yeah it's it's a great ending yeah he just he gets nicked and we we haven't even talked about uh, this is a little bonus extra because i know you, it was such a good moment and you loved it in particular when he's poirot hastings jap and donnington are having dinner back at the same restaurant talking about it all about the dress rehearsal aspect of it and then cricket comes up again and i just think that speech Goddamn. Verity takes 14 wickets for 70 runs on a day when England bowl out Australia twice to win the second test. Six wickets in the last hour. And after the weekend rains, you are surprised, mon ami? Australians are used to hard pitches. The Lord's wickets would have been decidedly sticky, no? So it's not a day for the stroke play? No, it's a day for the art of spin bowling. And Hedley Verité is the greatest exponent alive. Bowling left arm, the leg breakers to the right-handers. He would have them marching through the long room in no time. Eh? He has flight variation, the Chinaman. And the most deadly quick of all that dips into a yoka. Oh, yes. On such a day, Monsieur Verité would consider, what, 14 for 70? A fair haul. <laughs> <laughs> Did you notice what uh, Jap was having for dinner? No, I didn't. No, it was boiled owl. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Very good. All back. Very good. <laughs> Enjoyed that. <laughs> so, did, did you solve it, listener? Did you get it? Did you solve it? You must have done. Of course you did. They're all very intelligent because they listen to this podcast. It was like a 36-piece jigsaw. Not a thousand like our prize, but pretty good. Couldn't fit that on the table. But tell us if you solved it at all our social channels. We've talked about them a lot already. Yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, go to linktree.com slash laboursacule and let us know if you solved it. And if you get in there quickly enough, yes. enter our competition. Quick. And if you want to say nice things about us, we'll read it out in the next episode. That's all from us. Thank you very much and goodbye. Au revoir. If you'd like to keep up to date with what we're doing or get in touch with us, you can follow us on Twitter at Labours Hercule. We're also on Instagram if you like pictures at Labours of Hercule. And if you were born in the 1920s yourself, then you can be all old-fashioned and email us at bonjour at thelaboursofhercule.com. That's it from us. See you next time. Au revoir, mes amis.